Boy 50. Them say I carry that, that automatic Yahoo boy. Why are us the bar? We go make your mama lose joy. Leave one for him leg, your future we go destroy. Police is your friend, all my other one a decoy. Sass the beat, sass the still, but Sega get your freaking back. Sega this, Sega that, but Sega know they ever slack. Sega tweet, Sega help, Sega be like light for dark. Sass the fear, sass the jail, all because of Sega fact. Sass be like devil, them they still kill and destroy. Person go watch ball, all my now they don't end the boy. Click pal, trigger happy, see the red on the soil. Vexed and enraged, on my inside they boil, only cop I can vouch for is CP Wakili. The rest will show you pepper, they are layers of chili. You they young, you get car, you they feel yourself a bee. Them go tax you, them go rob you, them go frame you up, you see. Officer of the law, but on duty you they blow grass. Young boys know they save, now your duty to they harass. Police turning bankers, them get POS, pure trust. RIP caller, they it is time to end us. I mean, just a little bit more, a uh, little bit more expansive introduction. Uh, Mr. Albrand is a graduate of Sergeant Albrand is a graduate of uh, Indiana State University. As you may have heard, he has 31 years of experience in law enforcement and is president of the Missouri Fraternal Order of Police, and is a detective sergeant with the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department. And he's also a member of the Ferguson Commission. Was appointed by Missouri Governor Jay Nixon to shed some light on, and hopefully, add some solutions to the circumstances that arose last um, August. Chief, Professor, you have a lot of titles right. there. <laughs> Which one do you want to use? Uh, chief Ison is a former chief of the Metropolitan Police Department of St. Louis and the E. Desmond Lee Professor of Policing and the Community at the University of Missouri, St. Louis. Dr. Isom is um, currently teaching and just recently, when it was just a couple of months ago, you were the Director of Public Safety right. for the state mm -hmm. and you decided to uh, what, retire again right, from that position and, and now you're to back to teaching. And he's also a member of the Ferguson yes. Commission. Mm -hmm. And here also with us is Clifton Kinney, who is a student activist and a senior at Lutheran High School. As a youth leader in the Ferguson movement, he launched a small student-based group that focuses on youth leadership, organizing demonstrations and protests. Uh, a student by day and a protester by night, he still managed to yeah, yeah. So I'm crazy. Okay. He still managed to get himself accepted to Howard and Morehouse University. Congratulations. And since my my husband went to Howard and my son-in-law went to Morehouse, I'm going to have to push you to make a decision before we leave here today. So, so thank you all so much for 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 being here. Um, you know, I was thinking in preparation for being here that uh, the wife of the former Canadian ambassador to um, Washington used to write articles about her life. Mm -hmm. And she was asked once how they invite people to things. And she said, we don't invite people, we invite jobs. So I'm thinking that, you know, you were all invited because of your jobs, but I was also hoping that we could be people. Mm -hmm. And we could talk a little bit about who we are and why we do the work that we do and have a little bit of understanding of that. So, Sergeant, could I start with you? Just ask, why were you attracted to law enforcement huh. as a career? Um, I'm not really sure, Every, because I don't have any other skills, basically. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> and we like to say, uh, too lazy to work and too nervous to steal. That's why we become cops. <laughs> but uh, I don't know, it's something that I've, uh, since whenever I can remember first that that's what I wanted to do. And, and I can tell you that uh, 32 years now, and every day is different. 
uh, every day is great. I still really love doing the job. Well, what do you love about it? Uh, could use the standard like to help people, but it's fun. I mean, it, it's really fun doing work. It's fun. Uh, it is fun helping people. Uh, you can really see changes that, that you can you can really make in people's lives. Uh, I love the people I work with, and uh, like I said, after 32 years, it's still fun to go to work every day. Okay, Clifton, what about you? What? Why were you attracted to the protest movement? Um, good question. Uh, first of all. I'm excited to be here today. Thank you for allowing me to come and share my story and um, my ideas on ways we can move forward. Um, prior to Ferguson and August 9th, I had no idea I was going to become an activist. Um, I was solely focused on graduating um, and taking care of my family. Um, prior to August, my mother passed away. She had stage four breast cancer in July. and. Um, I'm sorry. So um, when uh, Michael Brown was killed on August 9th, I was sitting at home and I was scrolling on Instagram. Uh, how many of you have Instagram? <laughs> so I'm scrolling on Instagram and Twitter and I'm seeing this body laying on the street and I started to get frustrated. Now part of this frustration was probably because of my mother's passing away, but it was just the realization that enough was enough, right? You know, I've grown up in St. Louis and I've experienced racial profiling, getting stopped and not understanding why, you know. So just going out there, seeing the body and the reaction from the police and also the community, it was enough to drive my frustration into social activism, to be able to help uh, my people here in St. Louis and across the, the country, really, and working with the youth. Chief, what about you? Why were you attracted to law enforcement? Well, um, I think primarily because of uh, my background, my parents. Uh, both of them were involved in public service. Uh, my mother was a teacher for 40 years in the St. Louis Public Schools. Um, my father was a firefighter. And then ultimately, he worked in administration for the Parkway School District. So I would say that you know public service is sort of in my blood. And so um, police work is one of those areas where you can serve the public and you can make a difference. And so um, it was not something that I had thought about growing up. But as I got into the profession, um, it was something that I enjoyed. Uh, and it was something that allowed you to give back to the community. And then moving into my, my second career, into uh, teaching, um, I think that was something that I picked up from my mother, who uh, committed her life for 40 years to teaching in St. Louis Public Schools. Do you, do you um, was it a tough sell for you when you decided to go into law enforcement being, as an African-American man? Um, some people consider the job um, hostile to the black community. Certainly there's a long history of that. Was that a tough sell for you? Was it a tough sell for your family? Well, I think um, when you look at um, African-Americans, like any group of people, there's not one experience that people have. There's different experiences that you have along the way. And so for me, uh, my father was a firefighter. And so as a firefighter, you know a lot of police officers. And so um, I grew up with a relationship with people who were police officers who were just like me. Um, so um, my, my viewpoint of, police officers was more personal 
um, than someone else who, who potentially maybe encountered police officers on the street. And so I saw people who looked like me who were in the profession who were friends of ours. And so um, I really didn't have um, any misgivings about it, nor did my parents at the time. Those came later. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Clifton, Clifton, does it surprise you to hear that the, both of these gentlemen uh, chose the profession because they wanted to help people? Does mm. that, is that the first time you've heard that, that they see themselves as helping people? Does that surprise you? Have yeah. you heard that before? Yeah, well, the, the police profession, the profession is to be a guardian, right? A guardian of the community, to be able to reach out and help. Um, but what I've seen in recent years in St. Louis and not uh, specifically targeting the gentleman on my side, but there has been a divide in the community. There has been tension between uh, po police and the black community, specifically the youth, you know. But just being real, just, just kind of, let's try to keep it 100. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you, when you look at most police officers, what do you see? Do you feel, what do you feel? I feel uncomfortable. Um, why should I feel that way? I shouldn't have to feel that way. I should feel like when I'm uh, speaking to an officer or when I pass by him or when a police car um, drives behind me, I shouldn't feel like I have to turn into the nearest quick trip lot in order to uh, evade him, you know. Do you remember when you started to feel that way? Because most, you know, little kids at some point, you know, um, and you know, spirit of full disclosure, I'll tell you that, mm. you know, my father was a firefighter and I have five police officers in my family. So I come from a policing family. My father was a police officer before he became a firefighter, which is a interesting story. And um, at, at the time when the mortality rate for firefighters was higher than for police officers. And that is the dominant job in my family. My grandfather, two of my uncles, my aunt, and two of my cousins are or were police officers in New York. So I understand the job, just understanding that. Um, but do you remember when it changed for you? Because if most little kids have a, you know, the police officer comes to school and he talks about being safe and he's officer friendly. He's like mm -hmm. your friend and you're taught that if something happens, look for a person with a uniform mm -hmm. and a badge. Do you remember when yeah. that, did you feel that way once? Absolutely. And most little boys want, most little boys and some little girls want to be police officers at some point. Do you remember when it changed for you Then it wasn't somebody who you thought of as a person to protect you, but somebody you needed to be protected from? Absolutely. I was in the um, fifth grade and that's when we were going through the D.A.R.E. program. Um, and my officer, her name was Officer Kelly, and we, we formed a good relationship. But the following weekend of my graduation from, graduation from D.A.R.E., I was uh, in Velda City, where my grandmother stays. And she grew up during the Civil Rights Movement. She took part in some of the busing uh, things that went on in St. Louis. And I was going to go outside to go play. And she said, make sure, you're, make sure you're safe because the police are gonna get you. And I'm thinking, I'm like, hmm, police my friend, you know, they're here to protect me, serve me. Um, and my mother and my father also had good relationships with the police in the neighborhood. So I'm going outside, I'm with my little brother. I'm also a sibling of eight, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm walking with you my had your own police force. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I'm walking with my little brother. Uh, we're about to go play basketball. I have no idea 
how to play basketball, but we're going to go do it. And we're going to the park, and we're actually um, going down the street. We get into the sidewalk, and we walk into the park. It's down the street. And the officer pulls up on us, and he blankly says, uh, what, the, what the F are you doing? And I'm thinking it's a joke. You know, I'm probably eight years old. I'm thinking it's a joke. I'm, what's going on? What did we do wrong? And I, ha I can't get scared because my little brother is going to get really scared. So I have to keep him, you know, safe. So I asked the officer, what, what is the problem? You know, my mother taught me how to have dialogue uh, with the police officers. And he says, get down on the ground. <clears throat> so we get down on the ground. We have no idea what's going on or why we're getting stopped or why we have to get on the ground and put our hands behind our backs. My grandmother's house is down the street on Velda City, so she immediately rushes out to figure out what's going on. Uh, luckily, uh, we weren't the suspects he were looking for. They had got a call that um, someone was shooting in the park. But my thing is, when does a certain when does a certain line cross, right? Why can't I have dialogue with you, conversation with you? You know, why is it so forceful at first? Why do I, why do I have to hear you um, come at me violently, violently, you know, when I'm just a part of the community, I'm just a kid. I just want to go play basketball. You were eight years old when this happened? Yes, yes, ma'am. And that's when things changed for you? That's when things changed for me. Sergeant, how are you hearing this? How are you hearing this? Well, certainly we don't condone uh, racial profiling, anything like that. But for, for every anecdotal story we can tell about something wrong like this happening, there are thousands and thousands of contacts made with the citizenry that, that are just exact opposite. Now, I, I really think we, do, we can do a much better job of communication um, uh, Chief and I were just talking uh, before this. It, building relationships is, is what everything is about. Um, there were some uh, uh, people I've met through the Ferguson Commission that uh, that we probably had uh, very disparaging opinions of before we met. But you know, once you get down and start talking to people, you get you get to know who they are, who they are, what they're coming from. Uh, that, that really but why helps. would somebody curse out an eight-year-old boy and say, get the F on the ground? Well, do you condone that? Do you think that's acceptable No, I behavior? do not condone that Do whatsoever. you think that's common behavior? Uh, no, I do not. Because, you know. because like I said, for, for every incident like that, I think there are tenfold more positive contacts. Do you think, sir, Chief, do you think that's common behavior? Well, I mean, I, I think it's difficult to know, really, um, because uh, many of these encounters happen outside the eyes of the public. Um, I would hope that that's not common, that um, an officer would approach an eight-year-old in that way. Even if there is a crime that's been committed, um, you would think that um, the, the level of fear that you would have for an eight-year-old wouldn't uh, dictate that type of behavior, wouldn't dictate that type of behavior for anyone. Um, so I would hope that that's not um, the way that officers encounter young people on a regular basis. Clifton, is it common behavior in your opinion and in your experience? Honestly, yes. Yes. Um, there is, prior to Ferguson and with the cameras and the media, 
the community understand and has understood and has felt it uh, for so long, the tension between police and them. Sergeant, can I ask you this? You know, I mean, it, let me just give you two experiences I've had because as uh, Charlie and Walter indicate, Charlie and Indicate have been coming to St. Louis and back and forth for, you know, um, before Ferguson, just because, you know, one of my stations was here and was very happy to spend some time here. But um, my trip here for my August dialogue, we were coming back from Ferguson on our way to the, to get ready for our evening event and there was a, 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 an after school fight, okay, outside of a middle school. Uh, and there were a bunch of kids watching some kids fight and we saw an officer pull up and there were three of us in the car so you can trust me when I say I'm not making this up. Uh, the officer got out and started cursing the kids, called them you effing dummies, what the F are you doing? These are middle school kids and I saw this. So I'm asking you, what is the training around this? What, what is it that you're taught about how to engage in I mean, obviously, it's very frightening as an adult. You don't want to see a bunch of kids kidding. But my concern as a parent would be, are they hurting each other? I think that would be my first instinct is, can we stop them from hurting each other as opposed to, you effing dummies, get the F out of the street. Is, I mean, tell, talk, can you talk to me about that? Well, kind of certainly they're not taught, the officers are not taught that. Mm -hmm. um, um, unfortunately, I think part of our whole culture as far as language has gotten that way. And, and I think sometimes officers may relate to the entire culture and, and that's how some people talk and they, they may, might believe that that's the most effective way of getting across. Um, certainly that's not uh, acceptable behavior, um, but I, I, I believe you that that did happen. So you're saying you think that sometimes people engage in that conduct because they think that that's the lingua franca of the moment, right? I, I, think, that's I the, think that's the... probably what is thought by some people, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, Clifton, I'm going to ask you a question. Also, when I came here, I was here last week and uh, mm -hmm. was coming back through the airport and, um, you know, because I travel a lot, I get special treatment. <laughs> and um, my bag went through and uh, she took it back, the, the TS mm -hmm. agent took it back and sent it through a second time. I'm getting a little irritated. She takes the bag off, she puts it through a third time. I'm getting a little more annoyed. So then she calls for a bag check, and I'm like, what is this going on? Why am I being, I am sitting here trying to get on my plane, and I have like all kind of frequent flyer miles, and blah, 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 I practically live here. What is the problem here? And so we go to the x-ray machine, and I see the image on the bottom of my bag, damned if it did not look like a gun. Mm. It wasn't, it was my makeup kit. <laughs> <laughs> it really did. Yes, it was a suspicious, it looked suspicious. From her perspective, it really did. Mm. Do you ever have any sense of why they do what they do? The police officers do what mm. they do? What do, you, do, you, do you ever think, well, maybe this is why they did that? Maybe mm. they feel threatened? Maybe they're as scared as I am? Well, I, I think we have to understand that there is a cultural disconnect, right? Between the, the people that uh, police and the ones they were trying to police, right? The majority Why, because of the race because because mm -hmm. of most of the police officers most of the police officers are white right yeah, the majority are and the statistics honest. show that that's the case is that true do you think you'd feel the same way if they were they were a different race your race honestly uh, <laughs> honestly no um i think uh the majority of the police forces are white but i think it's more it's it's when race and power and ego uh collide that's when you have um 
several people from several races abusing their power. Um, I was speaking to middle schoolers from Hazelwood East Middle and Southeast Middle um, this past week, just getting uh, to hear about their reactions and their encounters with police. These are young kids, these are 12 year old kids I'm listening to, uh, speaking about times they're getting stopped. Uh, they don't drive, but times they walk, you know, down the street getting stopped, times they go into a store, get racially profiled. These are real problems that these kids are facing. Some of these kids are getting PTSD uh, from being out there in Ferguson, getting gassed and, tear and hit with rubber bullets. You know, we have to listen to their concerns. But does it, does it, do you credit the idea that, let's, setting aside the events of last August, which you, we can't, because mm -hmm. it's obviously all in our minds. Exactly. I mean, it's a, but, but just on a day-to-day -day basis that these men, and they are mostly men, mm -hmm. um, feel afraid and that they're behaving in a way because they feel afraid too. Do you believe that? I believe that uh, they do have a very tough job, right? You know, because you have to serve and protect and with that comes uh, the possibility of death, right? As a guardian. Um, I'm not going to uh, deny the fact that they may feel afraid, but I also have to uh, get them to realize that with that job comes um, possibilities. We're all, we all feel unsafe, right, in this world. But, okay, we feel unsafe, so how can we bridge the gap? How can we come together to make the community safer? How can I make sure that your job goes as easy as possible? How can you make sure that I get to school safely without getting stopped? All right, well, let's switch to that. Let's go there. Let's, let's pick it up right where you, you gave us a char charge. Let's, let's go there. Do you want to start? Well, I, I think, I think he's right. What would fix this? What would fix it? What would make it better? Well, I think he's right. I mean, there's a, a fear on both sides. There's a fear on the side of police officers. There's a fear on the side of young people in the community. Um, there's this issue of how do you police a community, how do you control behavior. Um, all of those intersect in a way that sometimes brings about bad results. Um, I think one of the things is we have to look at you know, how we bring officers into the organization. Um, and as we do, how do we begin to give them understanding of the community that they're policing? Um, how do we connect them to young people, um, have that understanding. How do we give them the skills to police and maintain control in a respectful way? Um, those are the things that we have to start thinking about in terms of bringing people into the profession. And We're not thinking about those things now? Because I would think that those would be things that we think about now. You're saying it's not part, you're saying sensitivity to the community, awareness of who's there, a, a, a sort of a tool, an expansive toolkit of how to express authority. You're saying that's not part of the recruiting and training process now? Well, I, I think it is, but I don't think we do enough in that area. Mm -hmm. um, I think the focus is, is more on the uh, issues of policing, tactics, laws. Um, there, there are parts of the police academy that deal with community policing, with community relations, um, but it's a, a much smaller portion of the training process. And, and during that training process, I, I don't know that there is this effort to um, 
start to have this understanding of the community that you police and also start to, to sit down with young people who are in that community. We do some of that, um, but I think we need to do more and it has to be ongoing throughout the training process. Um, Kevin mentioned it's all about relationships and understanding people. Um, um, when you approach a, per a person in the, in the, the way um, that was approached in this situation, um, that's someone who is disconnected from the community, is disconnected from the people that he or she is serving. And so we have to find a way to, to bridge that. Or, or, or maybe his, his or that person's uh, understanding of the, is just, maybe, what if it's just like the sergeant said, that, that, you know, come on, let's just be honest about it. We know that people feel this way, that that's how these kids talk to each other. With the N word and the F word, that's how they talk to each other. Why can't I talk that way? Why can't I talk that way? Well, I, I don't know. It's, part of it might be that, but part of it may be that um, I'm trying to seem very forceful um, to control behavior. Um, and the person thinks that's a means of controlling behavior. Um, as opposed to coming into the situation, um, your command presence as a police officer is going to give you some authority, right? And uh, giving strong commands that are directing people to do things without disrespecting them. Um, so I, I think a lot of police officers think that you have to really be authoritarian, very aggressive to control behavior from the outset, right? I, I want to make sure that there's no attempt. Now, I don't understand why you do that with an eight-year-old. but <laughs> Or anyone. Or anyone. But um, I think their mindset is... Um, let me impose my will on this person to make sure that they respond to what I'm telling them to do. Sergeant, what, what um, do you think the predicate for Clifton is that the relationship is broken? Do you, do you buy that? Do you, that there's something that's broken that needs to be fixed? Absolutely, and, and if we could, sure. if I could go back just sure. a little bit, talking about, talking about the officer, is he afraid? Heck yeah, he's afraid. Uh, every day I'm afraid. And, and the, when you lose that fear, that's when, that's when you really have to, to wonder about things. And one of the uh, things I think we've dropped the ball on is looking at the officer's mental well-being. Um, we're really behind the curve on the PTSD problem. Um, uh, we, we started to see it with officers that got deployed, uh, came back, um, we're seeing it uh, you mean got deployed overseas? Or overseas and came back, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. The federal government wasn't ready for it either. Uh, mm -hmm. We know that the VA wasn't ready for it. Well, uh, in policing, we've kind of pushed that off to the side because, hey, we don't want to, I don't want to admit that I need help. And, and we're really trying to, we really need to get that aspect going because if there's something wrong with the, with the officer, that's going to lead into the way he, he uh, exit work and and I think that's a major step that we really have to take care of when I know that I can tell you that um, in my family the saying was I can't afford to have a bad day well exactly you know, when you go out with a gun and a badge you can't afford to have a bad day when did it you know I asked Clifton when did it change for him when did he stopped seeing the police as somebody to protect him and somebody that he needed to be protected from has it changed for you was there a point you can point out in your you know 31 years of experience where you feel things got off track Absolutely. When? Uh, the fiscal crises that uh, cities have, have faced, uh, downsized police departments, 
downsizing police departments means, hey, we don't have money for that DARE officer anymore. Uh, everybody talks about community-oriented policing. That's kind of a buzzword that started in the late 80s, I guess. Hey, that's nothing more than the way police work was supposed to be done since the beginning of time. Getting out to know your neighborhood, getting out to know the people in your neighborhood. But when we downsize these departments, you don't have the time. Uh, some of these departments are, are so strapped for manpower that they're going from call to call to call, and they don't have time to spend an extra 10 minutes on a call finding out what the real issue is, or uh, having a neighborhood model policing, uh, which, which has been hugely successful in the city of St. Louis. But um, I think the whole budget crisis really, and so we're talking uh, eight, ten years ago, I, I think we really saw a change uh, starting do you, then. Do you credit the Department of Justice report that suggests that in some of these municipalities the policing was basically oriented toward revenue generation, not public safety? That they, I, they were just basically using ticket for, runners. I know for a fact that that you, has gone on in some police departments, yes. Was that a surprise to you? To find no. Out you thought it was true. You knew no. that. You no. knew that. This was not news to you. I know that, that there are some cities out there that, that uh, perf uh, performance evaluations are based on, on uh, numbers, and, and which is wrong. We've always been opposed to that. Why, why, you know what, I'm, I'm interested, because I, I was here last week to talk to a group of journalists, and, and I was asking them to basically confess, like, what did they get wrong in this, you know? And I know you're going to have this conversation after this one, but, but confess, why didn't you all blow the whistle on that? We've been talking about yeah. that for years, mm -hmm. years. Uh, <laughs> sometimes the media doesn't always report what, what we want them to report, but, but for years we've been, we've been uh, advocating removing quota systems. Because you know, if, if I have to write X number of tickets a day, that's X number of minutes I can't spend doing what I should be doing. Uh, spending that extra 10 minutes on a call, finding out what the issue is, and, and it's just an uh, uh, avalanche of, of problems occurring from that. And what role do you think race has played in this? Do you credit the DOJ report that race, that the African Americans were disproportionately targeted for this conduct? Do you, do you buy that? Well, yes, and I buy that because the cities that we're talking about are predominantly African American communities. But do you buy that there was a difference in the way black people were policed and white people were policed? Because one of the arguments was that white people often got a pass, even though in the, in the, in the area that they were studying, that black people were stopped more often, but white people, when they were stopped, were more likely to have contraband, but they were less likely to get a ticket or less likely to get some sort of sanction. Do you credit that? Well, <clears throat> and it's a whole big mad circle because uh, if you look at the uh, numbers for uh, whites versus African-Americans on arrests from car stops. Uh, most of the arrests for African-Americans were for warrants, traffic warrants. Um, so if you take those out, the numbers are, are, are about the same. So that rolls back into that whole municipal court problem. Thing. I see what you're saying. Do you understand what we're talking about? Does everybody understand what he's saying? Mm -hmm. What he's saying that everybody gets, uh, that people were, Basically, there was a lot of aggressive ticket writing, and if you didn't pay the ticket, then a warrant would be issued. And so you're basically getting arrested for not paying the ticket before. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's where it goes back to revenue generation. But okay, but I asked Clifton to keep it 100. I'm asking you to keep it 100. Do you think that there's, a, there's an issue between white cops and black kids? That white cops somehow don't see these kids as their kids. They don't see them as kids. That there's a disconnect there on the whole. 
Not on everybody. The whole, on yeah. the whole, no. I, I believe that it, that, that it does happen out there, but, but on the whole, I would say no. So what do you think? It's a few bad apples problem? It's a few bad apples. I think that's part of the problem, but it goes back to the whole, we need to rebuild those relationships, which we haven't done in the last 10 years. What do you think? Well, I mean, you talked about what's changed. Um, certainly being in law enforcement for many years, I know there are a lot of great police officers out there doing very good work. But it's no doubt that there has been this tension between the police, and especially young men of color, for many years. Um, and it is primarily centered around car stops and pedestrian stops. Um, that's the, the major issue, is those encounters. Now, what I will say is that um, oftentimes police are called in to try to control behavior in neighborhoods that are challenged, right? And so one of the primary ways in which officers do that is vehicle stops and pedestrian stops. That's the main source. I mean, that's been um, the biggest issue in New York, right? Um, how are we going to control crime in New York City, St. Louis, Cincinnati? Um, that's the primary vehicle. And so, you know, the, one of the issues is, um, are we overusing that tactic, right, to try to control behavior? And then what are those interactions like uh, when we have them? And so that's, I think, sort of the, the core issue. Okay, um, so you don't think it's race? Because the question on the no, table is, would, is race, it is, of course it's part of the equation, it is would race. having a higher percentage of cops who look like the people they're policing help? Would that make a difference? It is race because um, the neighborhoods that it's occurring in are predominantly African-American. And so I think you can't separate the fact that it's not about race, right? Um, it's clear when you, when you look at the statistics. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily just different race of cops being there. Um, I think that helps, certainly it helps, and we should have diversity, but I think it's more about um, how we um, train people, bring people into the organizations, how we build those relationships, how do we police communities, is it us imposing our tactics on them, or is it that we need to bring the community into this process a lot more? What does that mean? What does that mean, bring the community into the process? I don't understand that. What does that mean? Well, you know, if, if you're having problems, whatever the problem might be, drug sales or car break-ins in a community, um, what does the community want us to do? What do they think it looks like for us to solve that problem? Um, certainly the community is saying that they don't think it looks like us stopping a lot of their young people on the street, right? And so if that's not the case, what are the other ways that the community and the police could work together to resolve some of these problems? Um, the community is saying, we don't want you stopping people in our vehicles all the time. Uh, that's not the way we want to do it. So how are we going to work to figure out some of these problems in neighborhoods? You know, I think it is a reality that in some neighborhoods there are serious crime problems. And so we do have to address that. The, the issue is the, the way we are doing it, is that what the community really wants? And how we're doing it, is that what the community wants? Mm -hmm. Certainly not. And so that's what I mean, that, that dialogue, those relationships are the things that we need to work on in terms of getting this right, keeping people safe, but also having people feel 
that the police department is keeping them safe in the right type of way. Sergeant, how does that sit with you? Yeah, can I follow up on that? Because yeah, it's a great point because, uh, hey, in the city of St. Louis, probably one of the most prevalent calls that an officer would get is uh, uh, suspicious person stealing drugs on the corner. Am I right, Chief? I mean, every day. Well, and when I was a patrol sergeant, we were tasked with uh, following up on some calls, doing spot checks on follow-ups. And we get those calls every day. And they'll say, hey, it's, it's the black male wearing a white t-shirt and blue jeans, and the drugs are in his right front pants pocket. Well, ma'am, are you going to, can we use your name to testify? Well, absolutely not. Well, I'm sorry, we just can't go and search people unless we have probable cause. So I think that's what the chief was saying. Does the community want us? Uh, and, and a lot of the disconnects are, uh, kids are standing on the corner, they won't believe that we got a call there because the, the little lady that lives across the street is tired of, tired of uh, the drug dealing going on in her corner. And, and yeah. they think, well, we're just harassing them, but that's the kind of dialogue that we need to get and get the community together on that. And I think the, the uh, other thing is that um, when you look at the adult, uh, teenager, a young person relationship, um, there's always this issue of we're not equal, right? And, and that might be even worse when you're talking about cops dealing with young men of color. Um, and so uh, that's an issue that we have to deal with as well, because if, if you encounter someone on the street and you don't see them as equal, you see them as you know, someone who is- in, A scale, a thug, right. um, a bad th citizen. Then that could bring out a reaction like the one- mm. um, I, think we have, I think we have to lay this out on the table that this issue is deeply rooted in racism. Um, uh, I think uh, we have to face issues of, you know, with this whole ordeal, it's classism, it's poverty, it's a power structure, it's a power problem. Um, I'm not gonna say we have to get this idea out of the head that, oh, it's just a few bad apples. Well, those few bad apples represent your whole department. So if those few bad apples are uh, making your department uh, um, look bad. Um, it's shown that you're using racist practices. That's your whole department, so we're just not going to say a few bad apples because there is a cultural disconnect. We have to lay that on the table. Uh, well, let's let the sergeant, mm -hmm. let's let sergeant respond. I mean, I, I gotta say that the, the whole thing of these racist emails, people sending in the, in the Ferguson department, sending these racist jokes about the president and the first lady. How, I mean, what is that? I mean, I'm not, what was that about? I mean, what, what, do you, what is it's it? It's totally unacceptable behavior. Um, but I think if you go into any business, you're, you're going to see the same thing. Um, cops aren't that much different than, than everybody else, and you're, and you're going to have that. Um, I think we need to, and we talked before about the, the training that's done in the academy, we need to do a better job of reinforcing that training throughout the career, and, and we, don't, we don't do that enough. Do you think that, do you, I, I'm curious to know how your guys feel about what's happened. Do you, to, to the degree you feel comfortable reporting their views, and I realize that, you know, you got thousands of officers that you represent, but how do they feel about what's happened? One of the interesting um, insights that emerged from my conversation with uh, journalists last week was that, you know, back in the day, I was looking up the coverage of the Civil Rights Movement, and what was fascinating from them, I was looking up the coverage in the Birmingham papers of the, 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 the confrontation between Bull Connor and, you know, the protesters in Kelly Ingram Park in May of 1963. Neither of the local papers put the story on the front page, and neither one 
quoted any of the protesters about why they were there. Mm. Not one. There was not one interview with anybody out there. It was all from the law enforcement perspective and all from the standpoint of government officials saying how they felt about this disruption. Now, of course, it's completely different, yep. right? In that sense that with social media, with, you know, they can get their story out in a way. And I'm not sure we always feel like we hear the law enforcement perspective, in part because sometimes you all don't talk. So, you, so for whatever reason, so how do your guys feel about what happened and what do they think? Tell, how, how would they respond? If we could get a bunch of guys here and get some truth going. Well, we went say? from being heroes after 911 to being vilified uh, today. Um, um, some of the experiences that those officers that, that uh, worked those front lines in Ferguson for 12 hour days that uh, uh, were spit on, had urine thrown on them, had rocks thrown at them, were shot at. Uh, uh, face protesters within inches of their faces saying they were going to rape their daughters and wives in front of them and kill them and those officers. Some of the restraint shown was just absolutely incredible. Um, I'm concerned with those officers well-being right now because like I said if we do not get the help where the help is needed that's going to uh, carry on in their work. The officers now feel like they're they're all out there by themselves. Do you ask about the race piece of it? Do they feel how does their whiteness feel to them? You know what I mean? Do they feel that their whiteness means something now? Do they feel like they're the enemy because they're white? Do they feel that... Well, absolutely. You know, but, but absolutely, the, uh, the uh, African-American officers are the ones that were, that were really vilified by the protesters out there on the line. I mean, unspeakable things were said to the African-American officers like out what? there. Like what? Uh, Uncle Tom, um, what are you doing working for the white man? Uh, uh, just horrible things said to them. Did you hear that, Clifton? Do you hear? Do you credit that? Uh, I, I'm all for peaceful protesting. I work for. Uh, I work with my community to ensure that um, justice gets done. I think we need to pay attention to um, the fact that we that there was young people out there getting gassed. Um, we have to understand that. Um, the youth, primarily the youth, age ranges uh, 13 year old and down, feel that the police are not there to serve and protect them. Police have to understand that just by them putting on the badge, they're automatically uh, understanding that their job is going to be dangerous. We have to understand as a community um, that we have a right to protest. You know, we have the right to get our voices heard. But what we are, don't have a right to is the way we are treated by police and how we were treated in Ferguson. Do you want to add something to this? Well, I think it's, it's no doubt that, as Clifton said, there is a disconnect between the police and young people. Um, and I think that divide is still there, as, as we talked about. But what um, is that divide rooted in? Is it rooted in race? Is it rooted in class? Is it rooted in age? Is it rooted in uh, the fact that, be, Sergeant mentioned 9-11, that you know, after 9-11, a lot of police, or, police agencies became, law enforcement in general, became much more um, hyped up. It wasn't about you know, kids shoplifting. It was about, is there a dirty bomb in there? Is, there is, this, is this what it seems to be, or is this a cover for something else? Is this a terrorist attack? Is this not? What, what's, it rooted, what's that disconnect rooted in? Well, I think it's, it's rooted in um, 
race, it's rooted in class, it's rooted in the neighborhood, the area that you, you live in. There are a lot of variables that uh, go into uh, this disconnect between uh, law enforcement and, and young men of color. Um, the question is, um, you know, really what we do about it. Okay. You know, that's the, the real question and it's, it's gone on for, for a long time and so now we're at you know, another point in history where we can start to um, make a difference and we can start to kind of change this, this relationship. Um, you know, there's no easy answers to it, but as, as we talked about before, it's about how do we provide better understanding, you know, how do we connect mm. police officers, how do we um, get them to understand their role in the community, um, how do we get them to hear young people like Lyft? Hold on and, one second. Let me just check a time check. Charlie, how long do you want to go? Uh, 10.30. 10.30. How much? Let me just understand. How much time? Huh? Got it. Okay. Thank you. I just want to know what we're doing. Thank so you. So I asked uh, Kevin when we were standing out here, is, is, you know, how do, we, how do we get young people and officers on the line in the same room? Uh, because those are, the, those are the relationships that we need to start forming. Oh, those are the groups that need to start having the dialogue. What's so happy? happens so often is it's you know us talking to each other and young people and police on the ground are not communicating and so I do think that is the start of the process is how do we get line officers and young people in the room and each side starts to hear their perspective and then moving from that um, how do we formalize that process well, along but, the way? But, but Sergeant also said the Sergeant also said that he thinks the the ironic thing is that he thinks that you actually need more police officers, not fewer, because you, because his argument is that those kinds of re, those kinds of relationships take time, and if you're going to spend that kind of time, you need more people to do the basic functions of the job. Do you agree with that? I, I do agree with that in, in part, but um, y you know the the other side of it is that you know being respectful in an encounter does not require more people, right? Mm. <laughs> so, um, but uh, to, to the sergeant's point, I understand what he's saying is that um, most police departments are strapped for time. And so, um, you know, being able to sit down and, and, and do real community policing is very difficult based on the resources you have. Um, oftentimes, police departments are moving from call to call and they don't really have time to, to sit down and really forge a great relationship. But, but Clifton thinks that this is a deep stem, and he thinks a lot of it is actually rooted in racist attitudes toward young people, toward black people, in, young people in general, young black people in particular, young black men in particular, particular. Can those be, if that's true, can that be unlearned? Can you train people out of that to be different, to, to behave differently? I think we can. I mean, I, I, I think that here, um, Whatever, whatever background you come from, um, you don't normally, you know, use that kind of language in everyday life, right? It's something about becoming a police officer and having that authority that puts you in a position where you can say that. Um, a normal person who, before he became a police officer who saw Clifton on the street, is not going to talk to you like that, right? <laughs> so it's, You would hope so. So it, I, I do think it's a process of training. I do think it's a process of you know, accountability uh, for your actions. But um, yes, I, I do think you can set up a system and a structure um, 
where um, people approach people in a, a more respectful way. Clifton, you I have think, thoughts? Uh, I think we're saying that we need to bridge the gap. I have a solution to how we can bridge Let's the hear gap. It. So Let's fix this right now. <laughs> working, <laughs> working primarily, uh, me working primarily with uh, student organizers around high schools, I think in order to, a way we could bridge the gap between the, the police departments and the youth, specifically the youth going right straight towards them and hearing their concerns, maybe we could set up a, a board, a board. So having maybe delegates from each high school uh, representing their concerns and, you know, overall just forming that relationship between the police forces, uh, police departments in order to have conversation. Do you think that your friends would do that? Would they participate in that? And would people call them an Uncle Tom and a House Ann and blah, 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 mm -hmm. blah, if they were to do that? Uh, my friends? Yeah, do you think you could pull that off, that kids would do it, would participate? One thing we have to understand about this movement is that it was very organic. No one told anyone to go protest. Um, people just got up and did it. They did it because they had to. You know, we got gassed, we got hit with rubber bullets, but we didn't run, you know. We came back out the next day because we're fighting, you know. We're trying to make sure that something gets done because if we don't fight, who will? If the youth does not use our energy and our knowledge we are learning, who will continue to okay, fight? But, but, but my question was, do mm -hmm. you think that you're, because it was organic, because again, yeah. that is another difference from back in the day. Back in the day, you know, you had organizations yeah. like the SCLC and mm -hmm. SNCC who were organizing people to go out and train them. They had extensive training. Right. Those of you who saw Selma, you know what I'm talking about, <laughs> and the butler and all that, you know, that's, that's real. And since this, it didn't happen that way, as you said, a lot of people went out because they wanted to go there. Would, do you think this energy can be harnessed in such a way that they'd be willing to have these kinds Organically, of yes. dialogues? Yes. Well, what the does that way. mean? What does that mean? Because I think organic, I think a whole foods. Mm -hmm. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> because a lot of the youth already, um, they want to do something. Mm -hmm. The problem is, the issue is they don't know how. So if someone brings them a, a, a solution or a program like the one I just suggested, I'm pretty sure you'll have uh, youth in swarms. Who would want to work on this? You think they want to work on this? Sergeant, what do you think? Does that, how does that sit with you? Does that? Well, I like it, but you know, one of the problems in this unique area of St. Louis County is not only do we have 90 or 80 municipalities, we've got 63 police departments. Mm. Um, <laughs> great idea, real hard to, to uh, uh, put together unless, I mean, I'm sure we could, we could figure something out. But, but do you think, well, that's an important question. Do you think, I understand you're a member of the commission, you're gonna make recommendations. Do you feel that these departments, these municipal departments should be disbanded? There should be one unified department. Um, I don't know if one, but I, I, I certainly think there should be a, a far, far uh, smaller number of police departments in St. Louis County. Uh, it just doesn't make for effective policing. It doesn't make for effective policing. It, uh, uh, and as a labor guy, it, some of these guys are making 10 bucks an hour being cops. Um, and, and let's Would face they like it, to babysit for me? Because I pay more than that. <laughs> Well, and you know what, the, the, the old adage, you get what you pay for sometimes, 
sometimes works. I, I think if we, could, if we did some sort of consolidation, it would make for a more professional policing. Uh, these departments would be able to afford to give the kind of training that, that they can. They could afford to hire the best quality applicants that they can, and I think it would, it would be a win for everything. But, but you know, and uh, St. Louis County's been this way forever, and uh, it's going to be a tough sell to, to, to get that done, real is tough. It, is that in part because we've also talked about this whole question of, well, first of all, I wanted to ask you, this whole question of hiring more people who look like the communities they're policing, how does that sit with you? There should be more intentional efforts to recruit a more diverse police force. And, and I, the chief can tell you it's hard. I mean, I, mean, uh, I know we... Why we, is it so hard? I'm not sure. Um, um, and maybe because the stigma that, that uh, young African-American men don't want to be uh, police officers uh, uh, or, or really highly qualified uh, African-American men get snapped up by the private sector. Uh, I don't know. Uh, we do a pretty good job in the city of St. Louis. I think we're about 40, 40 something percent. We're not quite, quite there, but, but we probably lead the region in, in, in the percentage. But uh, I know, and, and the pay, the pay is horrible. So, um, so why are white guys still doing that job? The pay is horrible. People don't too like lazy you. To work and too lazy to work and too nervous to steal. Too lazy to work and too nervous to steal. I don't know. I, you know, I don't know. What, I don't know what the answer is. Um, um, but it might be that that uh, um, you know, private sector companies have have uh, minority goals that they want to do hiring too, and and sometimes we just can't compete. Hmm. Well, I'm told that this is an opportunity for questions, um, so I would love that. Are you guys open to that? Is everyone sure, sure. open to that? Questions? Questions? You're all, come on, come on up. I have two questions, yep. please. One is the percentage of police who are veterans of Afghanistan and Iraq. I, I, I'm sorry, sir, I would have no idea how to figure that out. I'm not sure. Well, I called the city police department once not long ago, and they said they thought it was around 60%. I, I, I would find that very hard to believe. Yeah, it's pretty high. Well, I think the implications of a combat veteran um, behind those tanks and in Ferguson and so on would be an armored personnel carriers it would be uh, important. The second question that I have <clears throat> concerns the five wide receivers of the Rams who went out with their arms raised and <clears throat> got so badly criticized primarily by one of the uh, heads of the police um, in, um, one of the FOP the union one of the, the union yeah. what's your question about it though you feel like why well, would it the the St. Louis Police Officers Association yeah well so, do you want to offer an opinion about that sergeant do you, do you well and I know it's been uh, the hands up, don't shoot was a was a myth, and it's a lie, and it's been proven that that that, that never happened. So the officers thought that 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 was that that was a, a smack directly at the officers. I think um, uh, anyone, regardless of their profession, 
if they want to protest, they have the right to do so, um, including the St. Louis Rams, regardless what, of their what, income. Tell me, because now that, but now that, the, do you credit the Department of Justice report that that actually did not happen? And what does that mean to you mm. if that is, if, if it did not happen, what does that mean to you? I think Hands Up, Don't Shoot has become um, more than just a symbol, more than just a symbol for Michael Brown. I think it's become a symbol uh, for the fact that there is racial profiling. You know, when I got stopped, don't shoot. You know, don't target me. That's what hands up, don't shoot means. And uh, those who protest will continue with saying that regardless of um, what was found in the report. Okay. Sir. Um, police need to stick up for each other and in many professions, doctors stick up for doctors and are loath to criticize each other. Um, but training helps and policy changes helps, but I'm wondering to what extent police feel ready to take on a fellow policeman who's uh, using a racial slur or sending bad emails or being disrespectful, because I think that's when it's really going to change, is when they feel comfortable and, and empowered, and I think the training should be about that, empowering one another to confront each other on behavior that's in, inappropriate. Well, and I agree with you, and, and we actually talked just about that at, at a meeting last night, and, and people would kind of be shocked to learn that, that I think it's almost 70 to 75 percent of all complaints against officers are generated internally. Internally? Internally. And that's in your in your department or you mean nationally? I would, Chief, you might be able to help me, but that's probably across the board, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, most, most complaints are internally related. Um, uh, much fewer portion are citizens' complaints. Um, oh. Thank you. Ma'am? One, one of the things that I found, find really, um, different, maybe difficult about St. Louis is how divided people are and where they live. Mm. So my question is, I mean, I've never been to Fenton or Festus. I have really a vague idea where they are. Um, but I think they're very different from the area that I live in, which is around Washington University. And has anyone ever come up with the idea of trying to have, um, I don't know how it would work, but I see a lady here who's done programs like that with children who are from different backgrounds who go into each other's environment. To have an exchange program with kids in Fenton, with kids in North St. Louis, uh, or something like that, so that people get used to each other and know that we're really all the same. We just live in different places. Has anyone, does anyone know if anything like that has ever been for here, just city kids. I mean, it's St. Louis metropolitan area kids, not um, you know going out visiting other parts of the country. So that's a question I have. Is, I, th I think your question speaks to the the fact that, and I I was not aware of this until we started reporting on this. Mm. The level of residential segregation in yeah. this region right. apparently is high. I mean, am I right that this is about Very the most segregated yes. region in the? And I've been here forty area. years, well, and it really hasn't changed. It's a always great been deal. that way. Yeah. Well, Thoughts about that? Here's an example: Delmar, the Delmar Divide, right? One side you have a fluent uh, community, um, wealthy, and then the other side, not so, not so well off. 
um, where, I, where, I, where I grow up, um, Bell Fountain, it's out in North County. Um, but there's a stark difference between North County and South. North County predominantly African-American, South County predominantly white. Uh, their resources are more, you know, they have more resources than us. Uh, policing different. Poverty, classism is very yeah. big in this issue. Well, I think, I think it goes back to our point that um, police departments are a reflection of society mm -hmm. um, and that um, we live in a divided community, both in terms of race and in terms of class. And um, that is brought to the police department with you uh, as a person. And so we need to be very, very intentional about how we break that down as you move into the profession. Um, it's amplified um, by police work, right? Because um, we have these encounters on a regular basis and we're bringing these backgrounds to bear as we encounter people. And so, you know, how do we, how do, we do that program with police officers, right? Um, <laughs> how do we mm -hmm. start to intentionally connect them to different types of people and bring that understanding? Um, it's great for young people, but I think that is uh, something that we need to think about in terms of law enforcement as we bring people into the profession. Sir. My question is, when do we or how do we begin to honor Clifton's story as not being anomalous, that it's, that it's kind of status quo? The reason that these children have been in the streets the way they are is because this is a common occurrence. It's like being in apartheid. So when do we think of that as being the norm and, and honor that and, and begin to make solutions based on that norm. The, 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 this is nothing new. The Kerner Commission report indicated that the relationship between police and black community was such that it gave rise to the uprisings in the 60s. Mm -hmm. And we're in the same place again in 2015, 2014. So when do we honor that? Chief, I'm going to ask you this to answer this because the fact is, I think, I feel comfortable in saying a lot of people just don't agree with you. I mean, I, I, I think that the gentleman's perspective, you see he's, he's getting applause here, but I feel very confident in saying that there are probably an equal number of people wandering around here who just don't agree with that. And so I think the question for you is, as a person who's a teacher, as well as a person who's been in this field, A, do you... Do you agree with him? This is the norm, and we should really take that worldview and address it that way. And how do you persuade people to take it seriously who don't want to hear it? Just don't want to hear it anymore. They just don't want to hear it. This is not affecting their lives, and they are not interested in this. Well, I think the question becomes, if it's the norm, um, what, is, what does the norm mean, right? Is every encounter that a police officer has with a young person of color, is it the way that Clifton's encounter happened. I mean, is, is that what we're saying, that every encounter is like that? I hope it's not. <laughs> no, I think he, well, he should speak for uh, himself. Are we sir, saying are that half of the encounters are like that? You gotta are come we back saying up and, a third gotta, of the counter? Well, I don't think that's what he meant. Go ahead. I think you need to clarify. I'm not saying that every encounter is that way, but many of the encounters are that way. That I've talked to kids that that have described that once they become adolescents, so they become 12, 13 years old, mm -hmm. they're looked at in a different way. Mm -hmm. They get stopped by the police, they get told to lay on the ground, they get, the, and it's not every single one of them. We've had this conversation that there's a point at which there are, 
there needs to be some discussion about how do we how do we change that policing and I understand the, the job I you know I teach people that are going to become police but but I think that the the challenge is how do we police communities in, and right. we've had this conversation how do we police communities that need police and not make them the enemy not make them feel like they're they're living in a state of, literally of occupation right well okay I, Go ahead. I think it happens enough to a degree that it's a problem that that's what I I believe and I think it happens more in communities that are characterized by high crime poverty you know low income um, it happens a lot probably in those neighborhoods um, in different neighborhoods it may not happen as much and so um, I can see that it is a problem and that we need to really start to figure out you know how do we you know how do we give officers the skills to deal with um, communities like that in a very respectful way but continue to police those communities um, how do we get rid of the fear that's associated with going into communities that have high crime and how do you approach a situation um, where you keep yourself safe but but also you know keep sort of the dignity intact of the persons and the people you're stopping um, but those are very very complex issues but I, I do think that is something that we need to address. Sergeant, do you credit the gentleman's point that more often than not or that these fraught interactions are more the norm and we should than not and that that's the basis that's the attitude we should take in figuring out what to do next? I think if we're going to seriously talk about bringing change, then that's, that's the uh, uh, way we have to go at it. Um, I think, I kind of think we're on the right track now and, and it's going to take uh, uh, both the management and the labor side to agree that, that these issues need to be discussed and something has to be done uh, uh, now and I think, I think we're almost there. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm told that we have one minute, I apologize. I should have apologized at the outset and said that, uh, that's like what the minister said to my husband and me when we got married. He said, you just start out by saying I'm sorry. That way you're covered for the rest of the day. <laughs> so I should have started saying. Just say what, just give a little statement. Okay. There's so much interest. There's so much, okay, that's, I'm, I'm, I'm at your disposal. Okay, so how about this? That's what, so Charlie's saying if we could just hear from each of you what's on your mind, and then I'll ask the panel to kind of each of them give a closing thought that addresses as much as you can. Is that okay? It'll have to be okay, I'm sorry. I'll make it quick. Good, Good morning, I'm Lisa Clancy with Teach for America St. Louis. Um, Sergeant Albion, I want to thank you for being part of this discussion this morning. I was at the panel that Michelle hosted last night and was really disappointed to learn that members of law enforcement had turned down the invitation for that. So and, I'm glad you're part of that discussion, this discussion. I didn't turn it down. I, I, I couldn't make it. I'm, okay. I'm sorry. I, I didn't know that it was, I wasn't specifically we saying it, just in general. But <laughs> I, did, I, have, I have two comments I just wanted to offer. Um, Sergeant Albrand, you said that police aren't trained to curse at kids. That might be true, um, but I, I just wanted to say that I think other life experiences, um, especially here in St. Louis, have taught all of us to think of kids as less than, as inferior, especially kids of color. So as a police department, I think that if you are not doing something to help your officers unlearn that, then you are complicit in that. Um, second of all, Clifton suggested that um, there be some sort of a youth board um, to address issues between police officers and youth, and you said that that would be hard to put together. Please don't let that be the reason that that doesn't happen. I think that people like Clifton and other youth here in St. Louis have proven that they are perfectly capable of 
of working with you to put something like that together. So Perfect. thank you. Thank you. Sir. My question is both uh, Kevin and um, Daniel have expressed uh, the need for change in policing and training and you just said that you're at a brink, um, something's coming upon that. What in the past seven months, the past year, um, what training has been changed to address these issues, these questions? Um, what policies are being changed uh, since both of you have expressed the need for that change and that there is some change happening? Okay, thank you. I've enjoyed the conversation so far this morning. I guess I would say, if we're really going to talk about healing the racial divide, love the comments about St. Louis, but this is a national issue. And I would say start with the youth, but in my youth, I thought, like you, young man, that it was about a youth problem. But I would tell you, everything you've said today has carried with me 59 years. Chief, you probably could speak to it. I could tell you I could be in Fort Lauderdale, not sagging. I could be dressed just like I am today, down for a nice weekend with my wife, leave the airport, and get pulled over. Not just pulled over by one policeman, but you look in the rearview mirror and you see three. So somebody saw me, somebody called for support, somebody pulled me over, but I'm an old dude, right? So I pull over, first thing I do is I drop the windows, I stop the car, I find a safe place to park, I pull out license and registration for rental car. My wife says, so what's going on? Well, I see three guys pulling me over, and part of the challenge here is what do we do in that situation when there's no accountability? There's no real reason to pull me over other than to ask me what? The question I was asked is where are you going? So I wasn't a threat. I'm a balding guy. I'm not sagging. So the question I have is what do you do in those situations when there's no accountability? So the officer who pulled me over and once I kind of ran it down, where are you going, where are you been? I just came from the airport, I'm over here picking up some toiletries, luggage just lost. If young people knew how to deal with that situation and diffuse it, I did. But it came after 50 something years of having been through, and I'd like to think that it's gonna end before you get to 50. Mm, I'm certainly. But why do I have to go through that? So I appreciate where we're starting this conversation, but it doesn't end with youth. And a lot of my colleagues, a lot of professionals, I'm a Harvard Law graduate, so I understand the law. And so maybe something in that conversation, that dialogue with that police officer, showed within 60 seconds, this is not the game here. And I suggest it's a game for a lot of these guys. But if there's no accountability, if I can't say or do anything, if there's no, when he leaves that encounter, if there's nothing that checks him, that police officer, then the problem persists. So somewhere in all of that is a comment and somewhere in all of that is a question, but that's my Thank you for that. Hello, I live in a municipality that really has taken community policing to heart uh, this past uh, summer I was part of a, a citizen policing academy and I got to see what kind of training that the police go through. But the one thing that wasn't in the training or any of the packets was what kind of training do the police officers get on about implicit bias? And the reason why I bring that up is because that goes across all race lines. I've had a negative experience with an, with an African American police officer this past fall. And so with, with that I'm wondering 
about cost. I hear that it's costly to do the training. I want to know how often, how long. Is it just like a 30-minute a, a training, a one-hour training, and that's it for the next two years? And so it doesn't get really embedded into their uh, behavior. I'm wondering about, um, is there any training on how to compartmentalize? I talked with a woman whose daughter is a police officer, and she probably is up in Ferguson. And she says how her daughter has changed. Her daughter hasn't learned how to compartmentalize. So she does see African-American youth as a threat. And, 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 and I can see how she's influencing her own family on how to look at African-American youth. So I'm wondering what kind of training are the police officers getting? Is it something where the citizens can be proactive and ask, you need more money? <laughs> and then how long? <laughs> Thank you for that. She essentially asked my question, but there was a slight modification in, in my thinking. Um, with respect to training, that's one thing. But to what extent are they, uh, are people who aspire to be policemen or police women given psychological testing or um, perhaps personality tests to discover whether they are even well suited to the kind of job that they have to perform? Mm -hmm. I guess we're along the same lines because my question was, is there any kind of test that you give to see if there is a propensity to be racist? Is there some kind of uh, uh, Myers-Briggs or whatever you have to make sure that the people that you are actually going into the academy are fit to be police officers? You know, you offer the, the, um, the PTSD. Well, black people are born with PTSD. All you have to do, you look at the mental health issues that the black community goes through, the physical uh, health issues that black people go to. And so I just need to know, you know, what, what, what happens before you even enter the academy? What kinds of things do you use to say, this may be a good cop, this may not, he may not work out, she may be uh, a little prone to, um, you know, doing things that aren't necessarily right. So, you know, I, I'm really curious about that. And, and then I also want to say to you, um, uh, Mr. Police Officer, the, the, the statement, too we late to work, here. too, something to steal. I, I did. That didn't hit me right. I, I, I don't think I, that that's. I apologize. A, I'm yes, sorry. Yes, that, that, that wasn't good. Thank you. Well, thank you. Good morning. My name is Marlon Lee. I'm the community organizer for the Urban League of St. Louis. And my comment would be that there's a special city to about the southeast corner of Ferguson called Jennings, Missouri, in which they're now in the fourth year of St. Louis County taking over their police department. Just saw that crime is down by 33%. Uh, and I think we also have a phenomenal superintendent, Dr. Tiffany Anderson, that will be speaking soon on education. So we're seeing a component of education and policing and something that's actually working as well. And then I have a comment for uh, Mr. Kenny mm -hmm. as a Luther North alum. Uh, I gladly welcome you to the Urban League to start the program that you're speaking about. We will go ahead and initiate that. Let's sit down and talk about it, and we'll get started. Thank All you. Right. Thank you. Good morning, and I also am glad to see a police officer here to speak on uh, behalf of the force. One concern I have is obviously the life-threatening issues that uh, citizens face. And I think it's really obvious when a 12-year-old is shot on a playground by police officers within a few seconds of arriving with a toy gun, and a man in a Walmart store in an aisle by himself is shot holding an air rifle. And yet, in Florida, a man who happens to have an AK-47 an automatic weapon can be talked down by police officers engaged for 30 to 45 minutes because he's white and not black is a major problem. 
It's also a major problem for anyone who's intoxicated, homeless, or vulnerable, because those are the people who are often the victims of police shootings and violence. And so I think police officers need to accept responsibility and own it and become accountable themselves for these actions. Thank you. Hi, I'm Andre Banks, a PhD student at the Brown School of Social Work at Washington University in St. Louis. And I have a, a lot of thoughts um, that I won't be able to share, but I just want to say, if any dialogue about race or the racial divide would have to start with the understanding of what race is, which is a very complicated word. And we know today that race is not biologically valid. It is a social construct. And that is still, even though it's in the dictionary, there's many studies that validate that, it's, it's not common knowledge and it's not accepted by all. So I think that has to be part of the discussion. And then with that, when you have racial divide, which is really a mechanism to maintain class divide, that's also going to be a very important piece of the situation. And you won't have any real change until you have um, more equity among privilege and, and income and wealth. And you know, we mentioned neighborhood disparity, but all of these disparities boil down to wealth disparity amongst our people. Um, I also want to say that I think officers should take responsibility, but we all should take responsibility because when the problems are focused to individuals, we lose sight of what we're really trying to do here. And therefore, when we look for solutions, I, I would like to think that we're looking at systems and we're looking at the uh, macro level changes that will affect everyone, whether they're actively involved or not. Uh, and then as far as funding um, for um, different programs or whatnot, here's one idea. Um, it costs $31,000 annually for each prisoner um, in our nation. Um, so if we stopped uh, imprisoning so many of our population, uh, just do the quick math, 31,000 times, you know, that's instant funding right there. And most of those people are incarcerated for uh, petty crimes and nonviolent offenses that, that really don't warrant incarceration. Uh, so I just want to put that out there as a, as a real um, solution that could possibly be worked on by everyone. Well, thank you all. Thank you all for your, if I'd known you had better questions than me, I'd have turned it over sooner. So. If, if I could just have a brief closing, a brief closing thought um, from each of you. Kevin, would you like to, to sure. start? And, and thank you all for being here. Um, since a, two or three people asked that question about the psychological testing for, for applicants, um, uh, the big departments do it. Unfortunately, each city determines what their hiring process is, so it runs, it runs the gamut uh, for applicants. Um, I think, uh, like I said before, I think horrible that, that an incident like this had to get this conversation started, but it did. And, and I think uh, that, that we're moving on the right track. I think when we're talking about uh, car stops, discourtesy to, to black youth, I think the burden needs to be on uh, the middle managers, the sergeants, uh, that really need to take ownership for the officers that work for them. The, the chiefs, uh, really smart people, but they don't know what's going on on the street every day, so so we're we're trying to put the burden on the on the middle managers who really know what's going on out there, and I think if we can uh, reach them, um, we can start to see a little bit of a turn. Kevin Albram, the president of the Missouri Fraternal Order of Police, Sergeant Albram, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I think I think if we're going to have a serious conversation about getting something done that there has to be a bridge built. You have to listen to the youth. 
you said it was difficult to build a youth board. Well, if it's difficult to speak to kids, how are you going to get something done? How are you going to get other things done if that's such a difficult task? You know, I was speaking to my dean back in September, and then he was reluctant to even talk about Ferguson. And until he realized that I got hit by a rubber bullet and I showed him the mark, he realized, oh, one of my students is affected by this. I said, no, not one of your students, but many of your students. The whole community is affected by this. There's a disconnect between police and the kids. How can you police me if you don't respect me? How can you police me if you don't want to listen to me or try to understand my culture? So we have to work on that. We have to bridge the gap. I'm thankful to be here to offer solutions. We'll continue doing so. Thank you. Clifton, I, I, think, I think I speak for everybody here when I say we're very sorry for your loss, but we are very excited about your future. I think we're all pulling for you. And um, I think we all want to see you rise. And we're all very proud of you. And we wish you the very best. Thank you. Chief, well, I think Chief we, Professor, we look, at, <laughs> we look at St. Louis and, and we see that we're divided, right? And uh, those divisions um, actually manifest themselves within police departments as well, there's no doubt about that. Um, it's, it's clear that there is a disconnect between uh, police officers, um, young men of color, and African-American community. And um, it happens enough that it's a real problem in our communities and our relationships. Um, we really need to think about a blueprint, a roadmap to bridging that gap. Um, it, it does start with how we bring people into the academy. Um, it does start with um, what type of training that we have to break down those barriers, those um, thought processes that we bring into the police department. And it's got to be intentional and ongoing through um, suggestions like Clifton, you know, what are real practical tools that law enforcement have in their belt uh, to, to make sure that you are connected to the community um, and that you're policing with the community. Um, all of that is also going to take additional funding as well. I, I do think we need to press for additional funding for our law enforcement agencies because it does take money to do these things. Um, if you're really going to train officers, then we need to find people who are um, trained and have expertise in that area to deliver that training. And also, if we're going to do it, it needs to be ongoing. And so that means officers are going to be off the street, right? And so when you're off the street, that means somebody else has to be in your place. And so um, all of the things that we have are good, but I think we have to look at how much funding do we want much more funding we don't want to put into law enforcement to um, have these things happen. Thank you both so much for joining us. Daniel Isom is the former chief of the Metropolitan Police Department of St. Louis. He's the E. Desmond Lee Professor of Policing and the Community at the University of Missouri, St. Louis. And I should have mentioned that he and Sergeant uh, Albrand are also members of the Ferguson Commission doing important work. And we expect to hear from you when in September, the commission we expect, you've done a lot of meetings in the community. We know this is only one of the many conversations that you've been having, and we're grateful for all of you being here today. Thank, Thank you. you so much.
Thank you, Michelle, for a great uh, job of moderating. We let this go a little longer because I think it was just an extraordinary discussion. Um, I got out of it uh, a number of thoughts leading to action, including one right here. Uh, the dialogue board leading to uh, uh, Urban League is going to start that. That's uh, tremendous. Uh, they talked about uh, fewer police departments in St. Louis County, uh, possibly like uh, what happened with Jennings, maybe not at the, uh, uh, the reason for that. Uh, better recruitment and training, better pay, better uh, empowerment of peers to uh, stop uh, errant behavior, better testing and uh, uh, training, more accountability. Um, an exchange of kids uh, in different parts of the county um, and uh, increased funding, maybe through reduced, reduced incarceration for petty crimes. A lot of ideas uh, we will hopefully, uh, some of you will uh, carry them forward. 